Welcome to 39-Minute Conversations. Please wait for your host to begin this meeting. Your meeting is now being recorded. Okay, can you see me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Wonderful. Um, thank you for being here. Are you going to... Uh, there we go. There I am. I had Good to, to see uh, I had to reinstall Zoom because my laptop got stolen last week and this is my first Zoom on the new laptop. Well, I'm very honored to be christening it. I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> That's I am too. Gotta be terrible. That's awful for a writer to lose their laptop. Did you have stuff backed up elsewhere or? I have two backup systems. I have like Dropbox and I've got another program I use. So in, in one of them, the other program I pay for, I could not get it to restore but I had everything on Dropbox, so that's good. I thought about that. I need to do that better about that because, like, Final Cut, uh, Final Draft does not really have like a, a cloud service, so you kind of have to figure that out for yourself. It's insane. I've the amount of times I've left it in coffee shops, like to go to the bathroom or something, and no one has ever stolen it. And then um, someone broke into my rental car and oh, uh, smashed the window and stole my laptop bag with with two laptops in it. So it was rough. <sighs> I'm sorry that happened. That sucks. It's all good. It's all good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for being here. Um, before we get into it, and before I give you your official introduction, I do have to get through a quick ad read. I hope that's okay. It's you know very important to pay the bills here with this very real advertisement. Uh, this is a podcast where I talk to a lot of writers, not exclusively. I, I also talk to actors, filmmakers, comedians, people from many facets of entertainment. But as a writer myself, I end up on here talking shop with other screenwriters a lot. And conversations do cover a wide range of topics for writers, breaking in, writing routines, navigating the industry, helpful tips, good habits, etc., etc. One thing I haven't covered a lot on here yet is something that all writers practice, something that we maybe have even perfected, something that takes up more of our time and mental energy than maybe even writing itself, and that is the simple art of procrastination. And that is why this week's episode of 39-Minute Conversations is not technically presented by Marvel Snap. Marvel Snap, a turn-based card game for your phone or tablet featuring all your favorite Marvel characters and a lot that you've never heard of in your life. Wolverine, absolutely. Iron Man, you bet. Rockslide? Yeah, sure, him too, I guess. Battle head-to-head -head against players from all around the world. Use strategy to combine powers to dominate your opponents and lose anyway because it's hard and life is chaos. Win new cards, upgrades, and the knowledge that you've wasted a lot of time doing absolutely nothing when you probably should have been writing. That's Marvel Snap. Feel bad about how you spend your precious time, but have fun doing it. And hello, I'm Brian T. Arnold, and this is 39 Minute Conversations, a podcast about reconnecting with old friends and making new ones, but I've only got 39 minutes to do it because I will not be paying for Zoom Pro. My guest today is a screenwriter who is absolutely crushing it right now, and for some reason, he is slumming it by coming on this podcast. His credits include Stuber for 20th Century Studios, I Am Not Okay With This for Netflix, and Die Hard and Die Hard 2 Die Harder for Roku. Season 2 just came out. I watched it all yesterday. It is very, very funny. Folks, please welcome Tripper Clancy. Hello. Hello. Thank you for doing this. I'm very happy to have you. Um, Tripper, how do you procrastinate or, or do you? Um, yeah, I do. I think I... You know, if I look at like a six or eight hour workday, I think I try to get, you know, maybe two good work sessions in, like maybe two good two hour chunks or two and a half hour chunks. 
And then the rest, I kind of, uh, you know, it starts probably by checking email and then that leads to some other kind of things, hopping on Twitter or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of ways once, once you get the laptop open, there's a lot of ways to, to kind of lose yourself. I, I find all of them very helpful. <laughs> I think so too. I sometimes I feel very guilty when I'm not writing, and sometimes it's like, no, this is part of it. I can convince myself that this is absolutely part of the process. Yes, yeah. I I find there's like a ticking clock for me at the end of the day that I, you know, if it's um, my kids are getting home from school or something where I, where I'm just like, oh no, there's 45 minutes left before you know time runs out, and I really gotta clamp down and, and finish my work. And that that's, that's probably the most helpful thing is when I know that the time is running out. So you do, so you set a schedule for yourself like every day. Yeah. Yeah. I just basically it's dictated by my kids when, when it's time to, uh, to hang out with them when they're home from school and stuff, that's, that's when my work day, you know, typically is over. So I'm, I'm trying to like cram everything in by then. That's nice. I, I, I definitely have something I have trouble with because I'll go like weeks of like thinking about it and like oh I'll, I'll get to it I'll get it on page and then you know and then over two weeks I'll write 100 pages of just like I will procrastinate for months to get to the point where I can do that is kind of how I feel for sure and sometimes you you know this happens like when you sell something or when you land like a OWA you will be excited but then you're like oh wait I have to do the work mm-hmm. and, uh, and but it's it's way worse when you're not sitting in front of your computer, when you're just thinking about, I have to do it. It's, it really feels insurmountable, but then when you actually open up your laptop and start, you know, clacking some keys it actually, you know, you put, you kind of put one word in front of the other, and then eventually you do put something on the page, which is, is really kind of uh, obviously what our job is supposed to be. (laughs) It is. Um, Tripper, I do. I try to start these interviews in in the same way that this podcast was kind of born out of the pandemic. It turned me into a bit of a shut in, uh, and I started this to kind of give my anxious brain something social and performative to do. So I want to start with um, how has this time been for you? How did you stay sane? How did maybe this time change you, or what did you learn about yourself? Well, the first few months of the of the pandemic. Um, I was part of a writer's room uh, at Netflix. Uh, I'm not okay with this. We were working on a season two that we never got to shoot, but um, we went straight from the room itself to Zoom. And that occupied like my first several months was, and it was very long hours, long days, a lot of work and um, trying to retrofit some of the scenes and and scripts to a pandemic friendly shoot. And um, that I was so busy that like, I kind of felt guilty that the pandemic wasn't affecting me at all. Like I felt like, you know, people were going crazy and and like, you know, being indoors and and stuck with their loved ones or, or some people, maybe people that they thought they were loved ones and they're like, (laughs) breakups happening. And, and I felt, um, I felt like the work kept me, uh, you know, focused and and gave me, gave me something to, to think about each day. So I wasn't just thinking about is the world crumbling around us? Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. I, I definitely struggled with that for a little bit of um, trying to figure out, as I wasn't actively working on anything at that time. And I was, yeah. uh, so it was definitely hard. It was hard to like make myself right when everything felt uncertain. So it was nice that you kind of had that, like already like, oh, this is my job right now. I kind of have to. Totally. Um, and, it, when, and when that stopped, it, then, then I didn't have anything to do for a little bit. And I was like, that's when it kind of hit me like months yeah. later. I feel like mine was on a delay. Um, but, uh, but we've managed to 
figure it out. Yeah. I guess we're a few years into it now, so we're we're making it work. Um, I want to start at the at the beginning. Um, I I didn't. I was looking you up online. I found a lot of information, but I didn't. Where did you grow up? I have no idea. I grew up in Texas. Okay. Um, and all my family is still there. My wife's family is still there. Um, and so I went to college on the East coast and I came back to graduate school in Texas and Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, so i and I moved straight from Austin to LA to, uh, to break in as a screenwriter. Um, was there a movie or a TV show when you were growing up that made you like, this is what I'm going to do. Like that opened up your, that turned your brain on in that kind of way. You know, I, I watched a ton of movies growing up. My parents were really into movies. Um, you know, I think even at a young age, watching like Coen Brothers for me, I mean, like I remember watching Raising Arizona when I was too young to watch that movie. Sure. And um, I just thought it was, you know, such a roller coaster. Um, and, and but But honestly, I didn't think of it as a career until, you know, late in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really think of it as, uh, like a kind of a path towards uh, making a living or being sustained, you know, enough of a living to to pay rent or a mortgage or anything else. It that uh, and for most people it's not. And 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 honestly, it was, you know, I probably thought it was easier than it actually turned out to be. I think that's a, a fallacy a lot of us have because I definitely, yeah, I was in high school writing my first stuff and like sending it and sending it to LA. Like, this is it. This is going to be, this is going to be what turned like back in the day when you printed it off and mailed it. Um, one thing that I, I found when I looked you up that I didn't quite realize is that we have very similar stories about how we, uh, how we broke in and how our careers got started. You Tell won me. the script, pli- you won the script pipeline competition in 2010 with a script that your managers at the time didn't really know what to do with or weren't doing anything with. And that win led to new managers and agents. I won the script pipeline competition in 2020 with a script that my managers at the time were not doing anything with and didn't believe in. And that led to new managers and new agents. So that tripped me out when I read that. And I would love to hear about your experience sort of pre and post script pipeline, where your career was at before the competition, breaking in, what, et cetera, and then how that competition actually changed things for you. What if I am just you 10 years in the future? It occurred to me. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, well, that's, well, first off, congrats. On, oh, thank uh, you. On winning that contest. Um, yeah, it, um, it changed a lot for me. Uh, I think I didn't believe in script contests because um, I just thought they were kind of, you know, uh, uh, just a way for people to capitalize on uh, struggling writers trying to break in. I just, sure. uh, it's a money-making scheme. And I think there are plenty of those out there. I was going to say, there are definitely those that exist. Yeah. And there's those that make promises that aren't real promises about who the script can get to and, you know, those kinds of things. I think I did it because I was desperate and because I, I, you know, I did have a manager and I did feel like I was in the game, so to speak. Um, but, you know, the problem is your first manager, your second, your third, whoever it is, until you really break in and you're like making a living doing it, that person is a real gatekeeper to, to you, between you and the town. Mm-hmm. And if they tell you a script is not good enough or they don't like it, or it's not what they think they can, you know, shop around to people, then that's it. And that's mm-hmm. what happened to my script. It's like, it just, it just went on the shelf because that particular manager didn't see a way forward with it. And 
that's not anyone. So, you know, it's such a subjective business. They, you know, and a manager can't take out every single piece of material. There's, they have to have some kind of taste level that they think is something is good or bad. Um, but sometimes they get it wrong. And that's why I sent it to a couple of, I think I sent it to two contests. I think it was script pipeline and Austin film festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I got bounced out of AFF in the very first, like as soon as you can possibly get bounced out of a competition. Sure. Um, and then I won script pipeline. So, so subjective, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, everything changed after that. It's, it didn't change the next day, but sure. um, you know, over the next six months, uh, I was able to quit my day job and become a screenwriter full time so that it happened very quickly, even though it took, you know, five and a half years before I got to that stage. Um, mm-hmm. of kind of slumming it and, and struggling and working a day job. Yeah, I mean, I, same story, basically. I moved here. I did probably seven or eight years here working day jobs until um, I won a different contest first, actually. And that's how I ended up with my first scripts. Um, and same thing I wrote. They liked that first script. It barely went out. Second script I was working on and they just could not. They kept encouraging it to be things I didn't want it to be. You know, Not to disparage anybody. Everybody has different tastes. Uh, but then I just was like, I feel like I'm at a loss with this thing. I feel like it's good. I'm not hearing good feedback. I said, I didn't, I sent it to the pipeline basically because I was like, I just need notes on this. Like, I just need to see mm-hmm. if anybody thinks this is good. Yeah. And then it just happened to win and that changed everything. So it's, it's, it's wild how subjective this business is and how, you know, one person championing you and finding you really does make all the difference. It does. And, and I was at a point where my confidence had gotten pretty low. I mean, I think, you know, confidence is such a strange part of this career path because mm-hmm. you often have to um, create it for yourself. You know, there aren't a lot of people that are out there that are going to say, oh my gosh, this script was amazing. Like you, you crushed it. Like, I can't wait to get this to people. Usually that doesn't happen. And usually you're the one that's pushing your own rock up the hill. So, you know, my confidence was pretty low at that point. Um, Because I had written so many specs and, you know, none of them had panned out. I hadn't been able to sell anything or get, you know, hired for anything. So um, that was the break winning that contest that kind of like not only connected me with the right, you know, reps and and, and eventually the right producers and everything, but it also, you know, kind of gave me the confidence to know that I can actually do this as a career. In the same interview that I referenced earlier, you did talk about the importance of the fuck it script, you know, which is something that I definitely agree with. I'd love to hear your perspective on what a fuck it script is and how it can be helpful when you're trying to break in. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's, you know, when I came in at this and I was writing with a partner for, for most of that time when I was breaking in and working a day job and we were always thinking of like the highest concept comedy script that a studio would want to buy. And I just feel like, you know, you get kind of this tunnel vision on what does the studio want? What does the town want? What, what can I sell? And you lose track of like what you actually want to see on the screen for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just find it's easier if you, you know, if, if you build it, they will come in the field of dreams way. It's like, it, it's, you're, you have a better chance of putting yourself on the page and seeing if someone else out there, you know, gravitates towards it than trying to aim for some target 
that will move by the time that you finish the script. You know, if you mm-hmm. think every studio wants this or that, it's like by the time you finish the script, they've they've already been inundated with that kind of script. They don't want it anymore. They've changed their minds or there's a new head of the studio, whatever it is. You can't aim for what you think they want. So, and that's not to say that your fuck you script is going to um, get purchased or it's going to get made. Mine didn't, mine never got made. And, and it's, um, but what it did do is it showed everybody who I am on the page, opened up a ton of doors and led to my first, you know, six or seven uh, paid writing jobs off of that, that, that one feature script. That's wild. Um, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's the same, like, I remember, I guess it was two years ago, people were, oh, the only thing this town wants is Ted Lasso. Everybody work on your <laughs> Ted Lasso. Everybody work on your light-hearted, uh, yep. uplifting comedy and then squid games was the next giant hit which is the complete opposite so there's no point in chasing trends i mean yeah it's if you're not showing who you are on the page and you're chasing you're always going to be chasing you're always going to be behind i feel totally like. totally i think it's um yeah it's it's impossible for anyone to say don't write this thing mm-hmm. because someone out there will write that thing and it will break through and it'll become a huge you know movie in the zeitgeist everyone's talking about and so no nobody knows like i i don't know i i'm still always learning and trying to figure things out and like i never i never try to act like i'm the expert on anything because um because we still you know our expectations always change and and Mm -hmm. we learn things we turn in a script we we take on a pitch and we kind of you know try to feel things out but but again all you can do is kind of go with what you think in your gut is something that's really entertaining and interesting um, and see if ever, everyone else responds to it. I think that's a great way to look at it. And, and and one thing that strikes me about your career, and I do want to get into some individual projects, but just the overall sense of your career and the kind of things that you have written, there's a lot of talk in this industry about that comedy is either dying or dead, that, you know, I mean, obviously there's still comedies on TV and there's some lower budget stuff but there's fewer at the studio level you're someone who's had success in comedy at the studio level so i'm curious as somebody who writes comedy myself what is your take on sort of the state of comedy in the industry right now and how have you found success and what a lot of people are saying is a is a dying genre yeah no it's it's tough i think um i remember when stuber came out in 2019 i remember thinking this might be the last comedy that plays 3000 theaters. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, like pure comedy, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's an action comedy, I guess it's got lots of action in it, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's really a comedy first and foremost. And I think um, we've seen, and I don't know how many have come out since in the theaters, probably a couple, but um, it's just not what the theatrical, you know, w- what the demand is out there, what the theaters think that they can sell or the studios think they can sell to the theaters. Mm-hmm. That's why comedies have mainly gone to streamers and at-home viewing, which is really unfortunate because, you know, anyone that's ever sat in a packed theater watching a comedy, the laughter is contagious. Everything is funny oh, yeah. you're watching it with a bunch of people. I can tell you at one point when I was a teenager, I was convinced, no no disparaging this movie, but I was convinced that Adam Sandler's Mr. Deeds was the funniest movie I'd ever seen because I saw it in a packed theater totally. and it was just like, oh my God, everybody's having the best time. And I remember when it came out in DVD, I was like, mom and dad, you've got to see this. This is nuts. And then we watched it. And I was like, oh, it's not the same. Like, oh, totally. You know, comedy is so communal. And yeah, I think that we missed that. And so it's almost this weird thing where it's like, you know, if you watch a comedy on Netflix by yourself, 
you're not going to have the same reaction you would sitting in a theater with, with 150 people. And so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like maybe comedies don't feel as funny because we're watching them on streamers. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously, you know, um, plenty of examples of, of comedies that can break through that and they, you can watch them on an airplane and you're, you're, you know, dying laughing. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, I, I do feel like, you know, we have to find a way to get comedies back into theaters to get that communal laughing experience again, if, if we want to save the genre. I agree. And let's talk about Stuber. Um, was that a spec or was that something that you were brought in for? That was a spec. That was a spec. That was, um, you know, just basically how could you, you know, how could you pair up a cop and an Uber driver was kind of um, sure. the genesis of that. And I feel like um, I, 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 I just felt like one of those things where I had been trying to write like an 80s action comedy. For, I was going to say it felt like a throwback to like 80s, oh yeah, 90s yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I had wanted, I'd been wanting to write like a Beverly Hills Cop or a 48 Hours, some kind of a, you know, kind of throwback buddy, buddy comedy story, um, odd couple relationship. And, and, um, and, you know, no one had really done, I don't, at the time, no one had done an Uber movie. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's an example of like, I broke in with, with my fuck you script, but then, then it was kind of, that was kind of an example of like, how do I take something that's, that's, that I want to do, that's important to me, like an eighties action comedy, and then maybe try to fit it inside, like Trojan horse it into maybe, um, a concept that's in the zeitgeist that, that had, that, you know, resonates with, with people out there. And that I, I kind of threaded the needle on that one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, but even inside that movie, it's like, I, I come from, I was born and raised in Texas and, but I live in LA. And so, you know, I understand both sides of the, or all sides of the political spectrum. And even when I wrote that movie, I was like, I want, you know, the two main characters to be politically opposed, even though we don't really talk about politics in that movie. But mm -hmm. I, I was like, this is a cool opportunity for me to like, kind of put two characters against each other that are kind of like the things I experience when I'm back home for the holidays. Um, so, you know, that's an example of how can you put something personal into something that maybe feels a little bit bigger or more, or more commercial. Yeah. And I've, I've definitely, I think that's very, I think that comes across in the movie and that's something that I've, you know, when I talk to writers, I also tend to focus on is you want something that feels personal. You want something that only you could have written, but if you're, especially when you're breaking in, if you're not putting that into something that feels bigger or more current or high concept, it's tougher to get eyes on it. Like, even if it's like a beautifully written small thing, it's still a small thing. And that's going to take, you know, that maybe is for years into your career, not, or to make yourself. And I, I still struggle with it. I, I sure, find, me too. I find, you know, I find that I either think of like very, very, very tiny, small ideas that, that are completely me. Mm -hmm. um, that that have no business ever getting made because they're so small <laughs> and, or or I think of like kind of bigger ideas and I immediately lose myself in them because I'm not thinking about you know what's what matters to me when I'm when I'm kind of you know coming up brainstorming those ideas so it's it is the hardest thing and and it's you know in some of the best writers and filmmakers they are able to kind of um, take something very personal and package it in something that's bigger and, and resonates with a wider audience. I definitely think so. And one one thing, speaking of of uh, of things that are bigger, Dave Bautista is the star, is the star of uh, Stuber. And he 
is so funny in it. Um, and he is really an actor who's having a moment right now. And I think people are realizing in the last couple of years how much he's really capable of um, beyond, you know, he came in as a wrestler and now yeah. he's become a character actor who can do anything. Um, what was it like? Was that kind of what you pictured for that role? Or was just like, was that you realizing like, oh my God, this guy can do, this guy's crushing this. Um, you know, I hadn't seen, I, I knew I knew of Dave um, as a wrestler and I hadn't seen much of his work as an actor, honestly, when, when his name first popped up. And um, then I remember meeting him for the first time and, and you know, and, and being like, this, this could be like a really amazing fit for this role because he, you know, he's frankly probably larger than I imagined in that car because <laughs> he's just <laughs> a massive individual. Um, but, you know, Kumail actually is not, is not small um, either. Uh, so uh, it's, it- Not it these was, days. Yeah, exactly. But um, it, it kind of, you know, the, the relationship and the, the, you know, the, between the two of them worked very well, but I, mm -hmm. I, I feel like um, that was probably my first worry. I was like, this guy is, I think is too large to play this role. Um, but he's, he's great. And he's obviously proven himself over, you know, even since Stuber and beyond mm -hmm. he's, he's got the chops and he's challenging himself to do all kinds of different roles. Um, I think everyone that comes out of wrestling has kind of an ax to grind to prove mm -hmm. that they, that they belong. And, and I think we've seen it with several of them that like, making that transition is is easy it kind of makes you appreciate how much you know good acting goes into the to the wrestling work a thousand percent and speaking of that also includes die hard 2 which uh john cena pops up in very funny yeah. um let's talk about the die hearts i don't i want to get into that before we start getting running out of time Do it. uh one thing that i'm very curious about with die hard i would love to hear about your perspective on is kind of the unique and tumultuous journey that it got on just to just to exist and be on. I mean, every every project has some kind of journey like that. But this one starts on Quibi. Quibi goes away, ends up on Roku. Roku then, and then there's a movie edit of the first one on Amazon. Yeah. And then there's a season two on Roku right now. As just as the, as a writer on this, as the, as the co-creator, creator, are you... How much are you watching from the sidelines and wondering what the heck is happening to your, to your thing? It's a little bit chaotic, to be honest. It's um, well, when when Quibi started, the deal they made with creators was we're gonna we're gonna air your show for two years, and then after that, you can do whatever you want with it. You can cut it as a feature, you can sell it somewhere else. Um, so it was very appealing to you know people like Kevin, um, people like me, to to be able to kind of you know, recut it, even though it is, it is the exact same cut. Um, mm -hmm. There's just no commercial breaks. Right. So um, that was kind of appealing because we thought, well, even if not pe people don't see it on Quibi, they can maybe see it on another platform. That's a bigger platform. And that's where we, you know, we're on Amazon prime for, mm -hmm. for the movie version. Um, it is a little confusing to people though, that saw it on both platforms and they're like, this feels like the same thing and, uh, <laughs> because it is exactly the same thing. Um, but, you know, I think when Roku bought Quibi's library, they kind of um, grandfathered that deal into it. And so they were not able to say, hey, wait a minute, we don't want we don't want it to be on Amazon. We, we want it just on Roku. So that's why it kind of ended up on like this weird place where the first one is going to Amazon as a movie while the second one is coming out on Roku. And it's mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, if, if we had started with Roku originally, it probably would have been the deal would have been structured differently. But that that's just a result of kind of the, the strange 
um, thing that happened when Roku bought Quibi's library and kind of inherited those contracts. And just an example of just sort of the weirdness of streaming these days and like the industry, you know, navigating it's harder than it used it, to be. It's bizarre. And you see shows, I think Westworld is coming out on Roku now because it's like, so. um, because HBO wanted to, you know, take that off the books. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's, it's an extremely strange time in the business. I'm, I have a hard time keeping up, to be honest. Same. Yeah. I've talked to a couple of people on here who have either acted or written for shows that were on HBO Max that are just now non-existent. And yeah. it's just such a, yeah, such a weird, hard time for, I mean, I think about it from the writer's excuse me, perspective, obviously, because yeah. that's, you know, what I am, but also like an actor who does really good work and then is just gone. That's so weird and so like scary to think about. Um, but before we get too much into the state of the industry, let, I want to keep on Die Hard for a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's very funny. Season one uh, reminded me a lot of like um, like a Bowfinger, but like mm -hmm. more from the perspective of the of Eddie Murphy action star hero. Um, what was it? So this was a, something that you pitched on, right? Yeah, there was a there was. I think Kevin actually pitched it originally himself. Okay. Um, and then there was a uh, a draft from another writer, Derek Colstad, mm -hmm. and then um, I came in and kind of put my own, uh, revamped it and, and basically tried to just focus on, um, the comedy of, of what life would look like if Kevin himself really wanted, was like, you know, dying to be an action star. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's, uh, for me, it all clicked when I kind of came up with the coach Ron character in that, in that first season, mm -hmm. I, I was like, as, as ludicrous as it is, I was like, what if there was someone who was an expert in this and they could train regular actors to be, you know, action stars, uh, and then what if he was like just a weird, sadistic human being? And mm -hmm. um, and then obviously there's a lot of twists and turns in that. And that's, you know, for me, all storytelling is like, how do you set expectations? And um, then how do you subvert those expectations? Mm -hmm. And I feel like the short chapters or the short episodes of Quibi or Roku kind of force you to do that every 10 or 12 minutes. Sure. So it's like, it's not usual to have a cliffhanger every 10 or 12 minutes in a feature, but in these short episodes, it's kind of a fun exercise to be like, okay, what am I driving to right now that we can, you know, make people think they know where it's going. And then we can pull the rug out every 10 or 12 minutes. Which honestly is not a bad way to, even if it's not necessarily a twist every 10 to 12 minutes, you do want to keep people interested in reading. So that does sound like a fun experiment for anything that you write is just how can you, you know, keep it moving and keep it in a way that's, yeah, always interesting and never like, you know, keeping people's eyes from glazing over. <laughs> that's part of our, that's our entire job. Yeah. For anyone that's ever written or struggled to write a feature script, it's like act two you know, 60, 70 pages. And, you know, if it's not thoroughly outlined, you, you really get lost in the weeds where you don't have those reversals of expectations. And um, so it's kind of a good exercise to like, try to figure out, you know, um, where are my turns? Like where, you know, within those 60 or 70 pages, where am I guiding the audience where they think it's going? And where am I switching directions um, to keep them engaged and entertained? Was it like working with someone who is arguably the biggest comedy star in the world right now? That's, uh, I mean, obviously you worked with great people on Stuber and, and other projects, but this is, you know, Kevin Hart, like selling out Madison Square Garden. And and how is that? How is that process? It's, it's great. It's great. He, I mean, once cameras roll, it's like, he is uh, so good and so funny and like whatever his riffs are, they almost always work. Um, 
And I feel like there's a huge advantage if you're doing comedy to having actors who are also either amazing stand-ups or writers themselves. So like, you know, Kumail and Stuber. Um, in Die Hard 2, there's Kevin. There's also Ben Schwartz. Mm -hmm. I was going um, to get to Ben Schwartz. And there's, so we'll talk there's about Paula, him. Paula Pell, who's mm -hmm. like a fantastic uh, comedy writer. So it's like, um, that's a real advantage if you can when you're casting is to put great writers in the acting roles because um, when they, you know, they're going to do the first take uh, on the script or the second take on the script, but like as they start to riff and, and Eric Appel is our director on, on both of those diehards, mm -hmm. he's so good with improv also. So it's like when, once you start letting them riff and, and the, the shit that they come up with is oftentimes far superior than whatever's in the script um but uh my name still goes on the title page so that's <laughs> yeah that that works out for everybody yeah i was going to mention ben schwartz and paula pell because i i'm a ucb comedy guy i came up uh doing improv and stuff so i'm always happy when ben schwartz pops up in anything and uh he's done a lot of great work but this feels like almost the maybe the best use of him since parks and rec it's exactly like his yeah. tone and speed and was he somebody that you pictured when you were writing it or was that just like a lucky break it was a kind of a lucky break he was one of like you know uh, uh an archetype i would say that i was picturing um i try not to get too attached to a specific actor or actress when i'm writing because you know it can be helpful sometimes to like hone in on someone to like really help you focus and find that voice mm -hmm. but um it can also be a double-edged sword where it's like you're not going to get that actor. So you, you want to make sure it's not too specifically written for just that person. Um, yeah, he was definitely in the, in the zone and, and thrilled. So was Eric when we, uh, we were able to, to lock him down and, and get him cast. Um, yeah, he's, I've always found him hilarious. Uh, I, uh, I've seen him live multiple mm -hmm. times. I mean, he's just like, he, in, in watching him work, it's, it's like, you just feel lucky because you feel like the next time around he's going to be impossible to get and he's going to be too busy on too many yeah. projects. Um, so uh, I just feel like he's, you know, and, and I felt that way about our entire cast for Die Hard 2. I was like, I was like, wow, we got, you know, we had a great casting director and I just feel like we got lucky to to be able to get everyone aligned in the same, you know, same month of schedule and, and all show up to set. It was, it was amazing. Congratulations on Die Hard 2. It's very funny. I, I recommend it to everybody. I actually called my parents last night to be like, and I know you've been looking for something funny to watch. You gotta, it's a little confusing. Go to Amazon or Roku. Like, but other than that, it's worth finding. Even, um, my, agent, even my agent was like, um, uh, I, I know I've got to pony up the $20 to, uh, to on demand to get to watch Die Harder. And I, was, I was like, no, 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 it's, it is free. It is totally free. It is on Roku. It's a platform. You can get it anywhere with an internet connection. Um, so it's it's tough. It's, it's tough. It's a little streamers and, and people get confused. I get yeah. it. No, I get it too. But it is sort of a, it is a problem that these things we should, you know, yeah. maybe, yeah, it needs to be a little clearer, I think. Um, <laughs> it might be too early to know, but do you know if there are plans for a season three at this point? Um, there are talks of a season three. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's probably all I can say. Fair enough. Yeah, I won't ask it. anymore, but I hope that yeah. I personally am rooting for that. Um, okay. I don't, we don't have a ton of time left. I would like to get your quick thoughts on this, though. You have, um, in addition to all this work you do as a writer, you're also a new member mentor in the WGA, which, you know, WGA has, we're going through NBA negotiations right now um, for this. And there's a lot of different feelings of, you know, there's hope, there's trepidation, there's anxiety. 
Um, as a mentor, what are you hearing? What are you relaying to to writers about sort of what's going on right now? And are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling anxious? Like what, what's your take on everything that's happening right now? Um, I mean, the biggest thing I try to remind the, those newer members to the Guild is just that, um, you know, if it feels like uh, the studios are not coming to the table uh, with the Guild, um, that is what happens every time. Mm-hmm. That That is not new. It, it would be abnormal if the studio showed up on day one and said, um, tell us what you want, we'll, we'll make it work. So um, it's going to be a negotiation. It, it, negotiation only works when both sides give up stuff that they don't want to give up. Sure. Um, the, the guild is not going to get everything that we want, and the studios won't get everything they want. And, and I obviously hope that it doesn't take a strike to accomplish that. Um, it's still a little too early to tell. But mm-hmm. um, so I try to just, you know, um, kind of help. There's a lot of anxiety, obviously. People worry what's going to happen. Nobody wants to be out of work. No one wants to willingly turn away a paycheck. So, um, you know, I try to just remind people that um, we have the best people we know negotiating this. Some of our our best writers in the in the in the membership um, that are TV writers, feature writers, they've been in our shoes. Um, some of them are super successful. Some of them are, you know, lower middle level writers that that are you know exactly what we are. But everybody started where we are, no matter what, and mm-hmm. and they. We're doing this because we want to make things better for the writers coming after us. Um, so it's uh, it's not going to be fun or easy, and yeah. um, you know, but uh, we will get through it. There will be a time when this is over. I think that's a good message to leave to leave that on. Uh, I'm glad that you're a mentor. I think I, I'm a new member myself, so it's really cool to you know. I think it's cool that the guild does that. I think I writers like you who volunteer their time. It's very appreciated. And do you um, have a mentor? I do have a mentor. You got a signed one? Okay, I got good. a signed one. Yeah. Uh, but we can are still hang out. We can still doing, talk. <laughs> yeah. No, okay job? They're doing okay. <laughs> they're doing a good job, but we can still hang out. We can still okay. talk. Um, uh, we have about two and a half minutes left. So I want to give you this opportunity right here to let people know where they can follow you, plug anything you want to plug. And then after that, we'll get into like some real deep questions. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's just my full name uh, at Tripper Clancy. Um, it's, uh, I have hot and cold streaks. I go weeks without posting sometimes, and then I will post a bunch in a day or two. It depends how, how busy I am on a project. So that's why, that's why I kind of hop off Twitter for, you know, days at a time sometimes, but, uh, that's about it. Um, I'm not really on the other, uh, social medias. All right. And watch, uh, Die Hard 2 on Roku. Yes. Check out Stuber. Watch yes. Watch everything. All the things. Everything that I've mentioned, check it out. Tripper's very, his movies are great. His shows are great. Uh, very honored to have you on today. Tripper, what do you think happens after we die? Whoa. This you, really, is the, you really took it there. In the last minute and a half or so, I would like to get very serious. Um, I mean, my honest answer is uh, is nothing. Mm. That's my honest answer. I don't know if that's that's the a very helpful answer for this. I just feel like, um, you know, we... Uh, magically luckily landed on this this rock that had the right atmosphere the right temperature the right elements to sustain life and the best thing we can do is try to take care of this place while we're here um but uh you know i i i grew up going to a catholic school (laughs) and i feel like that was um you know by the time i left high school i i kind of decided that maybe that wasn't for me 
Um, so I, I, I don't put a lot of thought into the afterlife, to be, to be perfectly honest. Do you, do you have a better answer than that? I'm sure you do. Uh, I was also raised Catholic. I, I, I still consider myself um, Christian, but I am not as churchy as I once was. I do like to believe in some sort of afterlife and some sort of return to the to God, the universe, um, you know, conservation of energy kind of thing. The the Buddhist kind of belief of like a wave returning to the ocean kind of thing. But I love the it sound is, of that. It's right. It's you know, it sounds nice. I like to reassure myself in that way. You might, you might be convincing me. Okay, good. Your meeting has ended. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to 39 Minute Conversations, hosted and produced by Brian T. Arnold. Music by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tune in for new episodes, and don't forget to rate and review. If you didn't like what you heard, please don't do any of that. That's okay, too. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and be well.